0: Welcome back to Basecamp. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I had the great opportunity of preaching at one of our partner churches, Trinity Fellowship. And in that sermon, I was given the the great task of preaching Matthew chapter 6, talking about how we are not to lay up treasures for ourselves here on the earth, but rather in heaven. And I call that sermon, Better Rewards. Now, as a ministry, we just had Nino preach a phenomenal sermon this past Sunday on this exact same kind of an idea, but I approached this from a slightly different angle. So I thought I would share it with us as a church so that we could continue to grow. And what does it mean to live with our eyes focused on this coming future kingdom of Christ and not fritter away our lives here uh, on the earth, living for kingdoms that are going to fail. So I hope this encourages you. you uh, haven't been around Trinity Fellowship maybe for the last couple of months, kind of like me, uh, as Matt said, this ministry has been walking kind of verse by verse, bit by bit through the gospel according to Matthew, which is one of those four complementary books of the Bible that tell us about the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so today we're continuing right there where Matt just read for us um, with that uh, big bold number six, chapter six, and verses are small numbers 16 to 24, And as we're getting started, what I thought I would do is zoom out for us a little bit and understand how these verses fit into the context around them and into the book itself. So as we start walking through them, we understand the structure of the building before we start walking in and trying to understand what rooms are are inside the building. So we're going to understand the structure of it before walking in. So if we zoom out just a little bit, we remember that today's verses are in the middle of one of Jesus' most famous sermons called the Sermon on the Mount. And this sermon starts in chapter 5, and will end in chapter 7. So we first recognize that in today's scripture, we are about halfway through a sermon. So you're just halfway in. Jesus is going to keep on going. And so you're halfway in. So we recognize that. So points have been made so far. Some points will be made afterwards. So then if we zoom out a bit further from chapters 5 to 7 and consider the book of Matthew kind of as a whole, what we see is that one of Matthew's consistent themes, one thread that he just keeps pulling all the way throughout his entire book from beginning to end is a thread that we actually saw in the Old Testament, that there would be this promised Messiah, this Christ, this king that Israel is waiting for, this anointed king from the royal line of David that we've been waiting for ever since 2 Samuel chapter 7 has finally come as Jesus, God the Son, laid humanity alongside of his divinity, and he stepped into time, what we just celebrated at Christmas and so what we see from the very first chapter of Matthew is that Jesus is not just some man, but rather he is our Emmanuel. He is God with us. So, so Matthew wants us to understand that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, and that he is this coming king, this anointed one, ushering in the very kingdom of God on the earth. So Jesus has two threads, the God man, 100% man, 100% God, and the promised king of Israel has come to inaugurate his kingdom. So those are two threads that Matthew's kind of pulling from the Old Testament, and he weaves them all the way through the book that he's writing. And so far, what we've read in the book of Matthew is we've read about the immaculate conception at Jesus's birth. We read about John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus. We read about Jesus's baptism and the temptation in the wilderness as Jesus succeeds in all the ways that Israel failed. And we saw how Jesus began preaching his ministry and then calling the first disciples and ministering to great crowds as he proclaims the gospel of the kingdom as he heals hundreds and thousands of people. And then we come to the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5. And in this sermon one of the overarching themes that Jesus is explaining is what it what it means for his disciples to live their lives as citizens in the kingdom of God. How they ought to live in the kingdom of God with Jesus as their king. How his disciples ought to live in conformity with God's laws in their everyday lives. So just as all true kings of Israel must do, Jesus begins by fleshing out, here's the rules of my kingdom. This is how you are to live. In this kingdom, I am inaugurating. And so he lays the groundwork of all that his kingdom will look like and who his people ought to be. And as you walk through chapter five, you saw a lot of practical concerns, things like anger and lust and divorce and oaths and retaliation. You saw they're called to love our enemies and be salt and light and how Christ came to fulfill the law. In that chapter, Jesus gave many ways that we are to submit to him as our king in very practical, everyday, everyday ways, as he kind of shone a light on some old patterns and behaviors that we are to take off, remembering that those are things that used to be who we were as people. But now that we are in Christ, this is how we ought to live as God's people, right? Sort of this, take off this stuff, now put on this stuff. so beginning at chapter six, we have a word of caution, though. If you want to look with me in chapter six, verse one, we read, Jesus say, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. So the conversation kind of shifts at the beginning of chapter six and it's filled, therefore, all of chapter six with cautions about practicing righteousness and what motivations undergird all of our actions. And we very quickly learn in this chapter that there is a way, there is a way that we can follow God's commands for living righteously with heart motivations that are not for the glory of God, but rather are for our own glory. We can practice our righteousness in ways that are not for his glory, but for ours. So so Jesus highlights the problem, this age-old problem of motivation. Why are we doing the things that we're doing? Why are we living righteously? And so we begin to see this whole conversation unfold throughout the rest of the chapter about the competing heart motivations inside of all of us. And the two options that Jesus gives for practicing righteousness are either manward towards one another or Godward, right? Someone can either have their eye towards, their eye towards men as they are practicing their righteousness or their eyes towards God. So we can, we can, we can long to honor God and demonstrate our love for God through our heart motivations and thoughts and actions. But there's this competing motivation when we practice righteousness externally, because we can want to be recognized by other people as being incredibly religious and devout. When in reality, we are just hypocrites, play actors. We can pretend to be holy in our affections and hearts and desires. And it looks the same on the outward. Looks the exact same. You might look at someone and not know what their heart motivation actually is because externally, they can look the same. Let me think about Judas. He walked around with Jesus for three years. Was, Was homeboy the only one who didn't cast out demons and teach well and do things rightly? Everyone else, the 11, when he betrayed Jesus, they were like, yeah, we knew all along there was something wrong with that guy. No, all along, they thought you're one of us until at last his heart motivation came out Oh, no, you are not one of us. So our heart motivations are what really matters in practicing righteousness, not just that we are practicing righteousness. So right out of the gate, Jesus wants us to know there's a way that we can practice our righteousness, to live out our faith as Christians in a very calculated public sort of way that we want to receive rewards from other people for ourselves. And there is a way we can live out our faith in a way that does not draw the attention and eye of others. So what we begin to see happen in Jesus's sermon is this turn in chapter six towards what is your heart motivation? What is your motivation for living righteously? And interestingly, Jesus frames the entire conversation of our heart motivations about reward, around rewards, saying that there is a way to practice our righteousness for temporary rewards, the praise of men or eternal rewards that come from God, the father rewards or rewards. What rewards are you living for? So, throughout this chapter, and really the rest of Matthew, we have to be thinking and evaluating our own hearts and what is our motivation for why we are living the way that we are. Am I living out my faith in practical ways to be seen by others, or are we doing so in order to be seen by God? And Jesus frames it this way Am I living a righteous life to receive a reward from those around me, or am I living so in a way to receive a reward from the Father? Now, before we move any further in this text, at this point, I, 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 want to, I want to acknowledge there might start to arise kind of this inner tension with Jesus's words maybe in our hearts and minds, right? So if we really understand the argument, and Jesus is saying that there are two competing motivations for, for living in a righteous way, we're either doing so, living righteously in order to receive rewards from, from people or from God, then we might begin to wonder if this is even a righteous and a right way to think about our lives and practicing our righteousness, I mean, should we be those who are pursuing rewards from the Father for how we are living? That phrase seems weird coming out of my mouth. Does it seem weird landing on your ears? That that's a, that's a, seems weird. It feels like a weird statement. What exactly is Jesus saying? It's really important because we shouldn't shy away from it. In fact, if we're reading through the rest of chapter six or quickly skim over it, this is the theme over and over and over again. We see the word reward constantly, right? Look with me, verses two and four. When we give to the needy, we don't sound trumpets before us like the hypocrites do, so that we're praised by others. No, because what's happening there, you're receiving your rewards here on this earth because of all of your trumpets sounding and your attention grabbing, but that's not how we ought to live as Christians. Rather, we are to be generous in secret So the Father sees us doing what we're doing in secret and will do what? Yell at me. Reward you. And when we pray, we aren't to pray like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and street corners to be seen by others. And so they receive their reward as others praise them and think really well of them. We aren't to be like that either. Rather, we are to go in the privacy of our rooms, shut the door and pray. And the Father who sees in secret will do what? reward us and we aren't to pray with empty phrases like the gentiles thinking they will be heard for their many words no so so jesus is telling us we shouldn't pursue rewards that we shouldn't pursue ungodly rewards for righteous living we should pursue the right rewards not the wrong ones so we're to question our motivations our hearts why are we pursuing righteousness Because there are rewards to be had, either rewards here on the earth or rewards from the Father. So rewards isn't the problem. The problem is what is our aim? What are we looking for? Which rewards are we amassing for ourselves? Now again, if that kind of thinking seems foreign to you, pursuing righteousness for rewards from the Father seems a bit off to you. What I would submit to you is that your uncomfortability with the idea of receiving rewards from the Father for your righteous living does not come from the Bible, but rather comes from the culture around us that we have inherited. In fact, C.S. Lewis, in his famous sermon called The Weight of Glory, explained where this kind of thinking comes from. He said, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. He says, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward, and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. And this is his famous line, if you've ever read C.S. Lewis. He says, We are half hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. See, as Christians, we shouldn't shrink back from rewards as motivation. I do this with my kids all the time. Your boss does that with your paycheck, right? Rewards rewards, uh, as motivations is a good and a godly thing in God's word, but it's what rewards are you after? What rewards are you after? It's not ungodly to pursue rewards. When Jesus, God in the flesh, tells you to pursue rewards, you're not more godly for saying, oh, I don't want rewards, I just want Jesus. No, Jesus says, pursue rewards. And you say, no, I don't think so. That's ungodly. And God is saying, pursue rewards. No, I don't think so. One of you is wrong. It's you, it's not God, and it's not his word. No, you are to pursue rewards. There are rewards for righteous living, which is something we need to really grab hold of. There are rewards for not looking at pornography. There are rewards for not sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend. There are rewards for disciplining your children and raising them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. There are rewards for not cheating on your taxes. There are, reward, there are rewards to be had, and we're giving them up because, because we're foolish. This is a good motivation as we're practicing holiness and righteous way of living. There are rewards, and our problem is we have our eyes fixed on the wrong rewards. We have temporary, fading, temporal, passing rewards, and we're happy with those. But Jesus is saying, There are better ones. There are greater ones. We are half-hearted creatures, half-hearted ones. What Jesus is calling us to is pursuing the right rewards and looking at our hearts and our motivations. So that is what we see. So as Christians, we are commanded to be advantageous, to have our eyes firmly fixed on heavenly rewards, not temporary or earthly ones. That is to be our motivation for godliness. That is to be our motivation for putting to death sins in our lives and pursuing righteousness. We aren't to have our eyes on rewards just here in this life or from people noticing righteousness in our lives and praising us. No, we are to live for the praise, the glory, and the renown of God alone as we train and fix our eyes on the glory of God and the rewards that are to come in the kingdom. Because when we have this wonderful Bible-saturated understanding of living for the glory of God alone and not the praise of men, then we will, by faith, be leveraging all that we are for better rewards, lasting ones, not fading in temporary ones. So zooming back then into the scriptures that we had read for us a moment ago, two of the ways that we are called to practice our righteousness, to bring it forth in our lives, the the kind of righteousness that demonstrates that we're Christians, as we see in First John two twenty nine, is through fasting and through stewarding all that God has given us to manage. So, firstly, we ought to glorify God when we fast. Now, now if you've been on social media recently, there is if if not, it's fine. Uh, but if you haven't, there's a lot of talk about intermittent fasting. You see that in the ads as you're scrolling. All of a sudden, there's all these intermittent fasting. What kind of a fasting person are you? Are you a wolf? Are you a bear? Are you a fox? I don't know. This is like random animals that they say that you are. Like, find out your body type and fast this long during the day. There's this craze with intermittent fasting for weight loss and other physical benefits. And so you might even wonder, well, what is fasting? And what is fasting used for in the Christian life? Is it just like that? Are we just trying to lose weight and have good health benefits? No. So what is fasting? Well, fasting is a temporary renunciation of something that is in itself good, like food, in order to intensify our expression of need for something greater. I'm going to say that again. It's a temporary renunciation of something that is good in and of itself in order to intensify our expression of need for something greater, namely God and his work in our lives. And as we become students of the Bible, we also recognize that there was nothing inherently Christian about fasting. Fasting was not a Christian creation. We did not come up with it. It was not ours to begin with. As a religious practice, we see it in the Old Testament. We see for example, in Ezra chapter 8, verse 21. We read Ezra, write this. He said, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all of our goods. And so for the glory of God, by means of their protection from danger, a fast was called. And so fasting is this intentional going without food so that you can intensify the cry to God for help. It's this having this inner pang of hunger that reminds you that your help comes from the Lord. Thus, in Ezra chapter eight, fasting was the embrace of physical hunger to embrace greater spiritual hunger for God to protect them and to help them cry out to the Lord. there are other instances as well, but needless to say, fasting was something the Jews did. And it was also present in other religions. For example, we had Jonah read for us a couple of minutes ago. And in the book of Jonah, we read about how the Assyrians of Nineveh, when they heard about the oncoming judgment of God to demonstrate the remorse over sin and to plead for the mercy of God, what did they do? They fasted. They even made their animals wear burlap and fast. Yo, that is fasting. You know, I mean, that's that's all out. And then even Darius the Mede in Daniel chapter six, verse 18, after he threw Daniel in the lion's den, he's fasting all night long. He's staying awake, not eating, fasting all night long, worried over Daniel's safety. And so fasting is, is not necessarily a Christian thing, but it is something that Christians are called to do in God's word. It's this renunciation of good gifts from God that we might intensify our expression or our need for something greater, namely God's work in, in our lives or power over sin. In fact, um, I, I read a book, a really great book, um, about fasting uh, a couple of years ago with some good buddies of mine. And one of the things that we were all doing at that time, we were all single dudes, And so we were having various sins in our life that we were just not having any victory over, whether it was lust or desire for uh, riches or other habitual sins that we had in our lives. And so we read through this book on fasting and through actually us fasting, it it allowed us to then cry out to the Lord for help and victory over these sins. And the Lord provided in our lives in a ball of really cool ways. So, so fasting is this great tool that we can use as Christians, but it's also important to recognize that fasting is not explicitly commanded in the Bible. To be a Christian, you do not have to fast. For example, for you to be a Muslim, you have to fast. That's part of it. That's part of the package. For Christians, we see no command that we must fast, but there are indications that it was normal and that Jesus expected that it would happen among his followers. That's why in our text today, it says, when you fast, and we see that word when twice, Right, So it doesn't say you never fast. It doesn't say if you fast, but it says when you fast. And so when we fast, when we forgo certain foods or activities or things, what are we doing? Well, we're intentionally devoting that time to intensifying our cry to the Lord for his movement in our lives. We're remembering our dependency upon him and we're intentionally going without so that the pangs of hunger remind us that we do not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Father. And so knowing the aim and the intention of fasting, Jesus said that that our fasting is, is not to be for the sake of impressing other people. See how weird that motivation comes out? If that's your aim, if you're going without so that you're intensifying your cry to the Lord for him to help you, doing that so that you just receive praise from people is the opposite of why you're even doing it in the first place. It's not for the fact of impressing people. That's not the point. It's the opposite of the point. So, so when we fast, we should even go out of our way to keep people from knowing that we are fasting. Jesus wants us to know this is between us and God. It's not to be seen by men. Rather, it's to demonstrate our heart's cry for God's provision. And at the very core of fasting is this radical God, Godward focus. Thus, as uh, one pastor explains, fasting is a test and a confirmation that God is real to us. Since in many situations, God is the only one who knows that we are fasting and the discipline cannot impress anybody. It's kind of a humbling thing, actually. Now, we'll talk again about fasting and when we get to Matthew chapter nine. So I'm not going to take us into any more detail about fasting other than to say there'll be times when you fast. And if you have never fasted and you aren't seeing victory over sin in your life and you feel like you have no hunger for God, but would like to, I, I would greatly commend this practice to you. In fact, there's a wonderful book, if you're brand new to the idea of fasting, called A Hunger for God, written by John Piper, that I went through, uh, that's that book I went through with a couple of guys that I would, I would highly uh, encourage you to buy, to read through. And so when we fast, brother and sister, what we need to do is we need to be careful how we do it. That's Jesus' word of caution. Do not do it to be noticed by others. Don't do it for people to think well of you. Don't do it to uh, persuade other people that you are a special, holy person because of your fasting. For in doing so, you forfeit any reward from God for doing so. For, verse 18, he who sees you fasting in secret will reward you. And that is a promise that we can take to the bank. See, because there are better rewards than the favor of men. There are better rewards than your elders thinking well of you because of your fasting habits. There are better rewards than your coworkers or Bible study group knowing about your fasting. And with the trendiness of Lent, which is coming uh, at the end of next month, as Christians, we really need to keep in mind that it is better to not practice our righteousness before others on social media or in the public sphere. It's better. You're forfeiting rewards if you do so. So if you see a friend post something next month, you can silently judge them. Uh, instead of praise them. You can send them this verse and say, don't practice your righteousness before men. Uh, Just kidding, don't do that. But in your mind, you don't do it. Don't do it. Don't make that post. Don't declare to the world what you're giving up and what you're fasting from. Because in so doing, you're missing the entire point of fasting and you're missing out on any reward from the Father who sees you fasting in secret and rewards you for it. Don't let your righteousness Church, be constantly before others. Let your righteousness constantly be before God and strive to not parade it before other people, just like the hypocrites do. Now, in saying that, sometimes there is just no way around it. People are gonna know that you're fasting. For example, if your spouse makes you something really nice to eat and uh, plans a really nice dinner for you, maybe you come home from work and it's a date night and you did not tell them that you're going to be fasting that day, that's probably not a great uh, Great thing, but maybe it is. Uh, you can just say, honey, let's just put this in the fridge and we can eat it tomorrow. Um, but but it, might be, it might be great to maybe let your, your wife know. You don't lose your reward for letting your spouse know that you are fasting. And it's not bad to let your spouse know beforehand that you are fasting. That's fine as well. But the important thing to remember is that not everyone needs to know, right? You don't need to make a show about your righteousness. Rather, if someone invites you to supper for the time that you've set aside to be fasting... Or, or out to eat, something like that. You can say, oh, hey, actually, this time doesn't work for me. Can we plan another time? You don't have to write back and say, oh, actually, I'm fasting today, so I can't come. No, no, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't lose your reward in order to be praised by others. Rather just say, hey, maybe we could do another time. Or maybe meet them for coffee or get some hot water with lemon. Don't make yourself disheveled. Don't try to let your righteousness be seen by them. Rather, let your righteousness be seen before the Father, and he will reward you. Now, the other way that we see in our text, uh, the second one, that we can practice our righteousness or bring forth our righteousness is through stewarding well all that God has given us to manage. And that's what verses 19 to 24 are talking all about. So John MacArthur, in speaking about this passage, he explained that the teaching of Jesus here is kind of the basic, the elementary teaching about not living with a preoccupation for the material, or as we see in verse 19, we're not to treasure up for ourselves treasures. If we are going to go look at blueletterbible.org and look at the, the Greek there, it's literally treasure up, not for yourselves treasures. And so if we look at that word treasure, it's kind of a fascinating one. Like Jesus says, don't treasure up treasures. Okay, what does treasure mean? As one commentary explained, it means to lay aside, store, to hoard, or to keep. In fact, if you look at some lexicons, it has to do with vertical stacking rather than horizontal stacking. And so what Jesus is saying in this is he's not for forbidding you from earning money or keeping money for good purposes, nor is he forbidding you from actually storing grain vertically so that it's protected from the snow. Like if you pass by a field and you see someone has a barn so they can put all their, their hay in there versus someone who does it the long way. One of those is not righteous and the other unrighteous just because of how they stacked it, right? The whole whole uh, goal here is to forbid us from storing up money to be wasted purely on self-indulgence with no eye towards the kingdom to come. And that's the whole issue here. And again, it gets to the heart matter of, of in all of us about how we perceive wealth and treasure in our lives. So we have to ask ourselves, well, do I perceive the goal of life? What is the goal of life? Is the goal of life... Mainly involving the gaining of money to be stored and then used for my own indulgence? Or do I see the goal of life, living for the glory of God, striving to honor Him and to advance His purposes with any wealth that we are given to manage here upon the earth? That's the question. So the whole question becomes how are we using the profit that God has given to us? Are we hoarding it away? Are we depending on it? What is our motivation? Are we trusting in our riches instead of on the Lord? Or are we stewarding the money that God has given us in ways that provide for him as we provide for our families and those around us and for gospel proclamation? See, a good heart question might be, as we're as we're looking at this, is are we hoping in wealth? Are we banking on it? Are we trusting upon it? Like, like when something wrong happens in your life, immediately, where is your... Where does your heart and your mind go? If something bad happens. Immediately does it go, I need to go check my bank account and my holdings and see where I'm at? Where does your heart and motivation go towards, Lord, I trust you and all that I have is yours? Then going and looking at your bank account and seeing what you can do and, and how you need to go. Where does where's your, where's your heart and motivation immediately take you? It shows us the things that we depend on. That's what our, our habits do. I about this like when COVID hit, all of our financial holdings. Is that what was the thing that you cared the most about? Or did you care most about the salvation of your neighbor next door? That's what Jesus is after here. What is, what is our heart when it comes to our finances? And this is important because the question is not how much money do we have, as if having a whole lot of money is unholy, and only having a tiny little bit of money is more holy No, in the Bible, our our holiness for us as Christians is not tied to how much or how little we have because God is the one who gives to every man everything that he has. To to some, he's given little. To others, he's given more to steward over. That's not the question. But the question is, where are our hearts and how are we stewarding the finances that God has given us to manage? That's what I mean when I say that. The real question is, where are our hearts? What is our motivation? See, the sin sin is not in earning, making, or saving money. For we read in the book of Proverbs that we are to save money. Later on in Matthew chapter 25, we'll even see Jesus tells this parable where he tells, uh, he, he tells a wicked servant who refused to steward well the money that he had been given, that he would have been better off if he had given it to the bank and made interest off of that money. So that at least some interest would have been made from it. So earning money, saving money, that's not the issue. The issue is that Jesus is driving home is what is our desire for the accumulation of wealth and how are we stewarding what God has given us? Is our desire for that self-indulgence, extravagant luxury, and hard-heartedness towards the thing of God? See, this isn't Jesus explaining that all money is evil and rich people are evil and horrible. No matter what the government tries to tell you, God never condemns money itself. And many of God's people have been incredibly wealthy. Think about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, David, Solomon. I could keep going, but just for example, all those people are incredibly wealthy. money is not intrinsically evil. Rather, it's simply a tool that reveals the human heart. I often say that money is kind of like a baseball bat. Like with a baseball bat, we can knock home runs or protect our families in the middle of the night. Or we can use that baseball bat to harm people. But the bat itself is amoral. It has no morals either way. What we do with that bat, that demonstrates morals. So in the Bible, money is never condemned, nor the possession of it. In fact, Deuteronomy 8 explains that God is the one who gives the ability to gain wealth and having a robust understanding that God is sovereign over every job and tittle of the universe, we know from his word that he is the one who raises low and brings high. He is the one who sovereignly determines who he is gonna to give to steward over much and who will sue it over little. And we know that no man can receive even one thing unless it passes to him through the hand of God. Thus, there's no question in the Bible And if God grants wealth to some and not to others, all that is under his prerogative. But the potential for sin comes in what we do with the money that he's given us to steward. Do we spend it on our own passions, hoarding the money that we have that we've been given to steward over? Do we tend to look to it for assurance and security and safety? Do we look to money as our provision when flooding or drought comes about? Do we fret and worry about losing all of our money due to the great reset and policies and laws that are coming down the line with this crazy government of ours? Is that your main concern? What fills your mind, heart, and affections? Do we look to money for comfort, assurance, and security? Or are we trusting that God is the one who is sovereign over everything? Are we trusting that He is the one who gives everything that we need for today, and will do so for tomorrow, and for the next day, and for the next day? Instead of fretting over our lives, we can approach our life trusting and knowing that everything that we have belongs to Him, And we are called to be good stewards of what he has given us today, knowing that we will be judged for how we managed his money. See, and that's the question. You know, the last couple of years, people keep saying we're in unprecedented times and unprecedented. I hate the word unprecedented. Every time I hear that, I'm like, we're not in unprecedented times. The world has always been crazy. The world has always been, always been crazy. If you're over 60, you're like, yeah, it has been. It's crazy. It's absolutely nuts. And as Christians, we're not called to find our security, assurance, and comfort in any kind of monetary wealth that we're stewarding over because it's not even ours to be fearful over. Let me say that again. It's not ours. It's really easy to forget that, isn't it? It's really easy to be overcome with worry and anxiety about tomorrow. But when we walk with the awareness that everything that we have belongs to God, we can walk through our everyday lives with great confidence and comfort, not trusting in our riches, but trusting in, God to provide all that we need, which liberates us, as John Wesley said in his famous sermon on the use of money, to work as hard as we can, to earn as much as we can, to save as much as we can, and to give as much as we can for the glory of God and his advancement. And if you look at the history of Canada, what has happened is that throughout our history, every single major university, hospital, and every church building has been built by Christians. As we have stewarded the wealth that God has given us, Not to build our own kingdoms, but to build his. That also, by the way, is how we send people out with the gospel to foreign lands, to unreached people, so they might know the hope of the gospel. We give away money and people at great cost to ourselves because we have an eye on a different kingdom and different rewards than just the earthly, temporal, fading ones here. So as, as I said, as Christians, the first way that we glorify God with our wealth is by providing for our own families. So men, you are called to work diligently as unto the Lord to provide for your own families or else we see in God's word, you are worse than an unbeliever, which simply refers to the fact that you know better and you're refusing to submit to God. The unbeliever doesn't know that they're living for their own kingdom and their own fame. You have said you're living for his, but you're not. So that's important. And in in so doing, as we're taking care of our family's needs, providing for them, secondarily, we then see, look around us and provide for the needs of others. Thus, what we're to do is so orient our lives that generosity marks all that we have and all that we are as Christians. Because in doing so, we're simply imitating Jesus, right, who left the glories of heaven becoming poor so that we might become rich with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Also, we see in 1 Timothy six seventeen about money, that we are also to enjoy the wealth that God has given us as steward, as it is God who gives richly all that we have to enjoy. Thus, we glorify God as we also enjoy the good gifts he's given to us and then turn by faith, thanking him for them. Thus, we thank him for family vacations and times away with our spouses. We thank him for warm houses in the middle of the Manitoba winter. We thank him for every good gift as we strive to glorify him because we know that all things come from him. So we turn and glorify him as we steward over them. So even today as Christians, those who are trying to practice our righteousness to live out our identity as the people of God, on the mission of God, with Jesus as our king, we need to think through how we are stewarding our resources. Now, if you're married, what I would love for you to do, sit down with your spouse later on today. Or the next time that you talk through your budget and read these verses together and pray and think about how you are stewarding your resources. Think about it. Do you have a disposition towards laying up for yourselves treasures here on the earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal? Or does your reformed heart transformed by the gospel and indwelt by the spirit does that heart beat with a passion for stewarding well the resources that God has given to you for his glory? And, 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 and thinking about that, are, are you thinking about ways that you can be industrious in building his kingdom and advancing his kingdom and laying up treasures there in that better kingdom? Or are you so preoccupied with things of this earth that you cannot see things clearly? And that is what actually what, exactly what verses 22 to 23 are all about. Look with me. So so if you, were, if you were listening earlier as Matt was reading through uh, those verses, and you're not quite sure how your eyes fit into the conversation on laying up treasures. You are not alone. In fact, I was reading through this text in prepping earlier this week. And one of the first things I do is I print everything out and I read through and I mark it all up. It looks like a crazy person. And, and I had in this section, verse 22, 23, a big question mark. And I wrote, what in the world is this saying? I have no idea. And so I spent a lot of time studying, looking at, at this, like, what, what, what is this saying, this conversation with eyes all of a sudden? What do eyes have to do with money? What does light and darkness have to do with the conversation about chapter six, about generosity and praying and fasting and laying up treasures in heaven? What does your eyes have to do with rewards and where you're living and, and whose eye you're after? Are you after the eye of God or are you after the eye of men? What in the world does this have to do with? And, and so as I, as I continue to look at verse 22, what we see there, the eye is the lamp of the body. So literally it's how light gets into our brains and how we see. And we have this phrase, if, if your eye is healthy, then your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, then your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in you, how great is the darkness? And the more, that, the more that I began thinking about the context, an answer kind of becomes more and more into view as we zoom out a little bit and look at this text in light of the context. Because in doing so, what we see is the constant refrain in chapter six in this part of the sermon has been that in practicing our righteousness, we need to be careful not to be doing so to what? To be seen by others. Rather, to be seen by God. Our eyes have been all the way through chapter six, even if we haven't recognized it, right? So in giving generously, we are to do so in secret. We are not to let in one hand know what the other one is doing. When we go into our room by ourselves to pray, we are not to be seen by anyone. We are to close the door, be alone. We are not to tell, let others know by our countenance, by them looking upon us, that we're fasting, but do it secretly. We are to be laying up treasures in heaven. Guess what, treasures in heaven cannot be seen. Uh, None of those can be seen. So the idea of sight actually has been all the way throughout this chapter. We just haven't seen it. See what I did there? We just haven't seen it. So verse 22 and 23, it's not this weird parentheses in this conversation where you're like, did Jesus spaz out for a second? What is happening here? It's not this weird pause, but it's an overflow of the entire conversation that Jesus has been having with them all along. We've been reading about the eyes of others, the concept of the eyes of God, but now the conversation has turned to our eyes, and what Jesus is preaching here is that when our eyes are focused, what they are focused on will be what we give our attention, time, focus, and direction towards. Right, similarly, it's like when you're first learning how to drive and you're driving in the snow, and your dad or someone like that said, don't look at the snow. You're gonna want to, don't. Look at the road, don't look at the snow, why? you will get into a wreck. Some of you are maybe taking driver's courses right now and you're like, oh, that's important to know. It is very, I just saved your life. <laughs> you are welcome. Don't look there. Look at, Because where we're looking at, that is where we will go. Where we place our eyes, shape where we are headed. See, there's this tendency in the human heart to place our eyes on things that do not matter. That's our tendency. Rewards here. Temporary fading things here, momentary happiness here. We focus here, and in so doing, we place our eyes on things that do not matter, and we head full force in that direction. That's the tendency of the human heart. In this chapter, for example, we can place our eyes on pleasing men and receiving rewards from them, so that we will miss receiving ultimate rewards from God because we traded the glory that comes from God for the fading glory that comes from men. So in regards to stewarding all well the financial resources God has given to us, we can do the same thing. We can be so fascinated with earthly pursuits, having our treasure in the things on this earth, and as we do so, where our heart is, that will be where our loves are and the direction of our life goes as our eyes are in that direction. Thus, as John MacArthur explains, if our focus is continually on money and accumulation and self-indulgence, he says you will be blind to the spiritual reality. Your vision is clouded and it is a severe darkness. Not only that, but we see in in here, Jesus says that it fills your whole body. You 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 become darkness as you spend your days laboring to fuel your own self-exaltation and your own Fragile, impotent glory. That's one option. But the other option is you can fix your eyes on the prize, the upward call of Christ Jesus, and run the race that he set for us. Living for rewards in a kingdom to come. And in the end, hear, well done, good and faithful servant, because you are covered in the righteous robes of Christ. So you're guaranteed to hear that but also because you have lived your life in such a way as you live for his glory and his kingdom and not your own. See, the determining factor in all of this is where are our eyes focused? What is in us, light or darkness? Are we after the eyes of men or after the eyes of God? Are we after physical rewards or eternal ones? Brothers and sisters, where is your treasure? Where is your heart? Where are your eyes? And it's this that shapes all of chapter six. So we would have left to be wondering, asking ourselves those questions because where our treasure is, where our eyes are, where our hearts are, that's our motivation. That's, that's what we care about. That's the kingdom we are after, which is fascinating, isn't it? Because what we see here is Jesus is commanding us, commanding us to have our hearts, our affections, our desires so fixated singularly on Him that we will live for the glory that comes from God instead of frittering away our days for the glory of man. But it all comes down to our hearts. What kingdom do we love? What what do we. Treasure, what do we value more? And the demand from Jesus is you must love my kingdom more than your own and find your treasure there. Not only practicing righteousness, but doing it with the right motivation. Love me, love my kingdom, not yours. So we're left with the question how do you do that? How do you make your heart that loves your kingdom, your money, your praise, your glory, your rewards? How do we take that heart and make it change what it loves? How do you do that? How do you do that? How do you fundamentally, how do you stop loving one thing that you love and love something different? That's the question that everyone asks around New Year's resolution time. Is it not? We might try for a while around this time of year, even though we love pound cake, we might try to love working out. Really hard, we might try and we might succeed for a couple of weeks, maybe a month. But then, what happens? Somebody makes or gives you a pound cake, and you eat the whole thing. And you're like, whatever pounds I lost, I just gained, baby, because I love it. What did you change your loves? Did you now love working out more than loving pound cake? No. You temporarily tried to force yourself to not love pound cake, to no avail. That's what you did. You try to force yourself to love one thing, but you don't change your love, so we don't treasure what we value. Likewise, in our love of money and love of praise and love of earthly rewards, we're all born in this world loving earthly treasure and fame and recognition. It's what fuels all of social media today, but has been long in the human heart beforehand. Every human heart that has ever been born desires fortune, fame, recognition, and glory from men. And as a result, we are all born into this world spiritually with blind eyes. We all love the darkness and despise the light of the gospel of Christ, which calls us to humility and faithfulness apart from any recognition or fame, as Jesus calls us to live for an audience of one who sees what we do in secret and will reward us. But we don't want that. We want rewards and treasures and fame and glory now because we love it. So naturally, we hate Jesus's words. We refuse to do what He commands because we love ourselves. We hate the light. We are in great darkness, and as a result, we have all earned and deserved the righteous wrath of God for living for our own glory and praise and renown instead of His. And this is why Jesus has come. Jesus has come to live the life that we ought to have lived. His eyes, His eyes were pure and filled with light, while ours were only in great darkness. He stored up treasures in the kingdom to come for the glory of the Father while we were rebellious and building castles of sand and finding our hope in them. He practiced righteousness in secret to be seen by the Father alone as he glorified the Father in everything that he did while we are so content to practice our righteousness in public because we crave attention and praise. Brothers and sisters, this is why Jesus has come to live the life that you ought to have lived, but then to stand condemned in your place. Suffering the penalty of our sins, so that we who are guilty, who have great darkness in us, might be washed clean, pardoned, forgiven, and given new hearts that love God and his word as we seek to live for his glory and renown, as we lay down our lives and leverage everything that we are for his coming kingdom. Friends, you cannot change your loves. But the good news is, is that he can give you a new heart and change your loves. You cannot change your desires by practicing righteousness. He can change your desires in a moment by the work of the Spirit. Friends, that is good news. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, that is what is available for you today. If you would repent of your sin and believe upon Jesus, you can be changed by him. Your loves, your passions, your desires, they can be exchanged by a miracle of God. That is your only hope for how you might be forgiven and restored before a holy God. So come today, believe upon Jesus, and you will be saved from facing the judgment of God against your many sins. And if you are a Christian today, then, brother and sister, the charge to you is to practice your righteousness. Be industrious to live for his glory. Do it with a singularity of purpose for his glory. Don't try to be seen by others. Live for the glory of God, for you cannot serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to one and hate the other. Which one are you looking at? Which direction are you going? So again, thanks for tuning in this episode of Basecamp and for listening to the sermon that uh, we did a couple of weeks ago at one of our partner churches. Pray that it was helpful for you and continuing to learn what does it means to be a faithful steward. Until next time.